This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Thanks for downloading the Let's Talk About Suicide podcast. This podcast is for anybody who's lost a loved one to suicide with a specific focus on the LGBTIQA communities. As the name suggests, this podcast discusses issues around suicide, which can be a tough subject to talk about, but it's important that we do. We want to provide support to people who are bereaved by suicide and let people talk about it. In all of our discussions, we'll be conscious to use appropriate language and your self-care is important. Listening to this podcast may raise issues for you, and if this is the case, we would encourage you to contact one of the following services in Australia. You can call QLife on 1800 184 527, the Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467, or Lifeline on 13 11 14. You can find all of these contact details on the JOY website at joy.org.au slash let's talk. This Joy podcast is produced in association with Support After Suicide, a program of the Jesuit Social Services that provides support to people who are bereaved by suicide, and Switchboard Victoria, which provides peer-driven support services for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and gender-diverse intersex, queer, and asexual people, their families, allies, and communities. We would also like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wondery people of the Kulin Nation, and we would like to pay respects to their elders past and present and emerging, and to extend our respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders people who are listening in. If you are listening to this podcast anywhere in Australia, you are on Aboriginal land, always was, always will be. Welcome to this episode of Let's Talk About Suicide. My name is Hamish Blunk and I'm your host for this podcast. And also guiding you through each of our episodes are our two wonderful experts. We have Joe Ball, who is the CEO of Switchboard Victoria. They are also a LGBTIQA plus community leader and use the pronouns they, them. And Dr. Louise Flynn, who is a psychologist and also the manager of Support After Suicide. We'll also hear from four brave people who have talked to us about their experience with a loved one who died by suicide. Bo, Lara, Peter, and Alice. In this episode, we're going to talk about what you might experience when you're grieving a suicide death, not only in the initial period after the death, but the weeks, months, and indeed years afterwards. Everybody's experience is different, but there are some similar experiences that people have. Movies and pop psychology make grief sound like it's a path that everybody follows, that you'll be in denial, that you'll have your anger phase, maybe depression and so on until you reach some kind of acceptance of your loss. Is this what you're experiencing? It's definitely not the case for me. So where did this idea come from? Louise explains. I think it was in the 1960s or 1970s, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross developed this idea of five stages. Actually, though, she was working with people who were dying, and she identified these kinds of experiences that people go through um, as they're preparing for their death. 
I think that because actually there wasn't anything else around, like it seemed to sort of, um, it sort of galvanised people and it became much more than actually she originally intended. There's something about stages which are simple and feel safe and manageable. And I think actually grief doesn't often feel manageable. It feels scary. It feels intense. And so the idea of five stages kind of leaves people sometimes with the feeling that this is manageable and safe. But actually, we've learned um, a lot more about grief and uh, it is much more, as I said, chaotic and erratic. If grief doesn't follow these neat five stages, what is a better way of thinking about it? I guess nowadays um, we don't really talk about stages of grief anymore. It kind of it used to be a kind of idea that there were five stages or seven stages of grief. And there was a bit of a problem with that in that kind of set up expectations about how grief should be expressed, what it should look like, how long it should take, kind of set up this idea that there'd be steps to go through. And that that's actually problematic because actually it wasn't most people's experience. Grief tends to be very individual, very unique to each person, and it can be quite a mix of emotions I think also that there is a tendency in grief to focus on the emotions of grief, the sadness, the pain, the anger, the fear, all those quite intense emotions. And I think grief actually is certainly an emotional experience for many people, but there's also thoughts that go along with grief. Um, There are behaviours, there are certain sort of experiences that come with grief that are more than the emotions So I think we're learning uh, more and more about how to talk about grief and talk with people who are bereaved in a much more uh, realistic and uh, very much more grounded in people's actual experience. Knowing that you might not grieve in a textbook-like fashion might relieve some of the expectations you have of yourself while you're grieving, but the emotions you feel are real and you might feel that how you behave and react to certain things has shifted. Louise talks about some of the more common experiences. Well, in terms of emotions, there are, you know, as I said, feelings of great pain, that the absence of the person, the sense of sometimes there can be anger, just anger at the world, anger at the, the unfairness that this person has gone, and fear, fear for the future, fear about what it means, uh, you know, for me now that this person has gone from my life. And behaviours, well, it's different sorts of behaviours for different people. Some people, it's that what we're used to thinking of in terms of grief, which is crying. But it might also be things like irritability, having, you know, just not being able to quite tolerate things so much. And in terms of thoughts and other kinds of experiences, things like um, lacking motivation for some time, not being able to quite participate in activities and function in the same way. Um, So not feeling motivated and not feeling able to concentrate really can very much affect people's capacity to concentrate and to just function day to day. And that's exactly how Peter felt after the death of his partner, Des. If you listen to episode three, you'll remember that they married just months before Des died. And after his death, Peter found that even ordinary things like going to the supermarket were difficult. I just cried every day. I just, I couldn't stop crying. Um, And I'd, cry in the strangest places you know I'd be I'd try and go to the supermarket and I'd just stand there crying in front of the Wheaties or 
you know, in the dog food aisle or, you know, at the checkout, I'd just be crying. Normally, I, you know, I was always quite fastidious or meticulous about, you know, how I looked in my general hygiene and I always went to gym and, you know, looked after myself, but I just, I just did nothing. I just cried, <laughs> but I walked the dog um, and thank God we had her, you know, um, because from the moment she, well, from the moment Des passed away, I still needed to look after her and I did, you know, Des died on the Sunday. On the Monday morning, I still got up out of bed at the normal time and I don't know how I did it, but I did it, but I walked up. For Peter, walking their dog Suki was the one thing that he managed to do in the days immediately after Des's death. And maybe that's all you can manage to do in those early days, just doing the bare minimum. Here is Louise again talking about people's experiences in those early days. Well, I think it varies pretty widely, but there are many people who find themselves um, experiencing a whole lot of things that they're not used to. So I think... I mean, one of the aspects that Peter highlighted there was that he was crying in places that he would never have cried in before. So I think people do, um, because of the intensity and the overwhelming nature of the experience, people do find themselves feeling, thinking and acting in ways that they never would have done before. And that can be uncomfortable and also a bit scary. People kind of don't recognise themselves. So it's uh, very unsettling. Joe Ball, who has many years' experience at Switchward Victoria, which is an LGBTIQA plus peer-based counselling service, has seen this firsthand. I think there's also things that you have to do, and that's what Peter's talking about, which I can really relate to from having uh, one of my colleagues suicide at work. And I, I really relate to Peter talking about that need of like having to get up the next day and walk the dog at the same time, like this sense that life has to go on or that things have to happen. And, and I really relate to him talking about the shock of that, that he can carry on. And I think that's really interesting for people to go through and is a really common experience is that you can't, there's very few people who can just completely do nothing in the moment that we all have responsibilities and we might pair those responsibilities right back, but there's still a range of things we have to do. And so there isn't always the opportunity to not do those things. So I think that's an important thing for people to be thinking about is that that's okay. You don't need to fulfill some kind of ideal of grief. I think initially for many people, the experience is very disruptive to normal day-to-day functioning. And for other people, as Peter described, just that one activity is kind of an anchor. Mm. Like it really, uh, just having a routine to stick to uh, each day just can be a real um, anchor and and very, very helpful. That moment where Peter's saying, um, I can't believe that I did it you know, that he was quite shocked that he that he could do it. But that that, that gets back to that there is responsibilities and, and that those yeah. responsibilities can anchor you, as you said. In the immediate aftermath of someone's death, as for a group of people, there is there are things to do. You know, there might be, you know, um, talking to the coroner, organising some kind of service, a funeral. So there can be certain things to do which also um, can be... Uh, very difficult, but also sort of they take over in a sense from the grief. Alice's initial reaction was anger in the period after her friend Ingrid's suicide. I was also very angry. I think that set in very early and quite strong. And I kind of decided not to 
hold it against myself. I was like, that's like, I'm just not going to feel guilty for feeling angry. Um, yeah, I felt quite angry at Ingrid. Um, and it was a very like, um, I was also kind of at odds with my personal, like philosophical beliefs about suicide. Um, which is that I don't believe that, um, I don't believe that suicide is selfish. I don't believe anything like that. But I was very angry at her initially, especially. Um, sort of like, like, why did you do this to me? Um, which was, I, and I struggled with that because I was like, this is almost like a selfish thought. Like, it's not all about me. But I was like, whatever, you know, like, I, I think this is fine to feel this way. Um, like, very, very angry that she didn't reach out. Um, that she was surrounded by people who cared about her and could have supported her, um, and that she didn't do that, and that, in fact, you know, even though she must have been in a lot of pain, um, now she had left us all with a lot of pain that we then had to deal with. Yeah, early on in those first few days especially, a lot of anger as well as a lot of, a lot of grief. What I liked about what Alice had to say is that she is really hinting and, and speaking about self-compassion is that she had these feelings and she let herself have them and I think that's really important is that you can you're going to have the anger you're going to have the denial you're going to have the fear you're going to have all those really intense emotions that's going to happen but then what also can happen is you can beat yourself up about that you can really take it to yourself about I shouldn't feel angry and you can hear her her battle that she has with that where she talks about that I I surprised myself but I think it's also really lovely how she talked about how she let herself have it she let herself have that anger and I think that's really important with grief is is compassion towards yourself and thinking about yourself the way you would somebody else that if you heard someone else talking about them being angry about a suicide you know how you should be and would want to be, which is just ultimately compassionate towards that. And I think sometimes we forget about ourselves. And I think too what Alice does there is that um, she makes that distinction, like being angry isn't the same as being judgmental. And that that's a very good distinction to make. And I think, like you've said, Joe, one of the most important things, one of the keys to actually to grieving is that self-compassion, the self-acceptance of whatever thoughts, feelings come with it to just allow them, as um, Alice um, so eloquently said. Alice being angry points to the nature of suicide being more complex than a death by another cause, as there are many other things that you need to contend with. Lara talks about how because her dear friend Ingrid's death was by suicide, it made her grief a lot more complicated. Yeah, I think other losses and death of other loved ones that I've experienced are very different to losing someone to suicide. Um, In my experience, it takes a lot of time to start. For me, it took a lot of time to start grieving because of the trauma associated with the sudden death and trying to piece a narrative together. So it it took me quite some time through talking to Ingrid's friends and family to work out exactly what had happened. Um, And then I was so numb and traumatised from finding Ingrid that it was almost like the grieving starts later because there's such a deep confusion that you can't 
you can't begin to grieve her, her not being here anymore for some time. Whereas when other people I know have died, it's been horrible and it's been hard, but it hasn't been it hasn't been as traumatic. Certainly many people, after losing someone to suicide, feel traumatised. And so it is certainly one of the experiences that goes with losing someone to suicide. Um, and there are other deaths where trauma is uh, a feature and very difficult to deal with. I think really when we're looking for what makes suicide unique, it's, it's things like the, what it leaves behind, the questions, for instance, what it leaves behind for people trying to understand how come this person who was loved and and uh, part of a community or part of a family, how come this person took their own life? Right, so really trying to understand what happened and how come this could have happened um, to this person? How come they got to that point where this seemed like the best option or the only option uh, for their life? So I think it's those kinds of things. It's also that real sense of... Uh, people's feeling responsible for it or feeling that, uh, questioning, did I contribute? Have I failed the person? Yeah, so that feeling of um, responsibility, questioning the quality of the relationship. I thought we had a good relationship. I thought we were a close family. This is someone who I thought would tell us if things weren't going so well. So that that tends to really have an undermining effect for people, like maybe we weren't as close as I thought we were. So it leaves behind a lot of experiences and questions um, in that that are like that. Because Joe works in the space of suicide prevention, they understand the additional complication of needing to have a message that suicide is preventable, while at the same time not placing blame on the loved ones after a person's suicide. You may have thought to yourself, could I have done something different? Could I have prevented it? These thoughts are really common after a suicide death. Here's Joe. I think that becomes one of the complications about suicide and and suicide prevention is when you promote the idea of suicide prevention, which is really important, is that you have to promote this idea that it is preventable, but then people who are bereaved by it are going through the experience of that it wasn't preventable. And I think that leaves so many people like in such a huge limbo that they have to confront and deal with themselves. And that just can eventually just never really be answered. I think sometimes people feel like, oh, if there had been a suicide note or if the suicide note had said more or if I'd gotten this or I'd gotten that, I would feel better. And I think that some of that what is Lara is talking about, that initial process of trauma and stress and anxiety is just like, I want more answers to something that is completely unanswerable. And I just think you have to go through that. And that's part of the process. Mm. I think too, because um, the death is so catastrophic really for everyone, that there's a sense that it must have been obvious beforehand. So sometimes people experience their own sense of what did I miss? I must have missed something. It must have been really obvious. And then also uh, what grieving people also experience is that some people feel like that they should have seen it. And so there can be a bit of a judgment. So I think that's that can be part of the experience too. Sometimes also overlaying like looking back at an event and saying, well, 
you know, that was the, the moment that I should have done something or that's a moment where something could have been done. And I think that that is part of trauma as well, the traumatising thing of thinking like, oh, that's the point that I could have intervened and just getting sort of stuck there for quite some time I think is a is that, again, that's that Lara talking about trying to get through that initial stage before you can even get to grief is this just deep sense of responsibility Those feelings of guilt and blame can be very acute after somebody you love suicides. What you could have said or done differently, or how you could have prevented it, might play on your mind a lot. And in a future episode, we will talk about this a lot more. Everyone's experience when grieving a suicide death is different, but it's not uncommon to feel angry, depressed, but not necessarily have depression, and confused about what happened. You might need to give yourself time to understand what happened, but this is not necessarily a quick or smooth path. There aren't any clearly defined phases or stages. It is complex, confusing, and messy. But know that what you feel will change over time, and the intensity will also change. Be patient with yourself and also those around you. In the next episode of Let's Talk About Suicide, we're going to talk about the stigma surrounding suicide, with an emphasis on the additional stigma for LGBTIQA people, and also the importance of community and staying connected with those close to us. So please join us for that episode. But before you go, at the end of each episode, I want to share with you some things that the people we interviewed with lived experience did that helped them with their grief. During our conversations, they shared some of their self-care tactics. They are some practical and helpful things that you might consider doing right now, or maybe just store in the back of your mind for later to help you through your bereavement. This first one's from Peter. Because I can't cook. I mean, it's not that I can't cook. I don't cook anymore. And because I wasn't cooking, I wasn't eating. And I was losing a lot of weight. And, and a friend of mine said to me, had I thought about um, meal delivery? And I said, oh, what do you mean? She said, oh, you know, like those companies for weight loss or whatever, where they deliver, you know, a week's worth of breakfast, lunch and dinners. And I thought, well, I don't really need the breakfast or lunch. But... I certainly don't eat, hadn't been eating dinner and I was conscious of the fact that I wasn't eating really and so then I, I tried one of them where I just had dinners delivered um, and that was okay. It got me eating again but they weren't very appetising so I went to another, another company slash supplier and they're great. I get, I get something like 21 meals delivered um, every fortnight. I put them straight into the freezer and so now I've got food. I mean, yes, I have to microwave it but... At least I've got something to eat. So I'm happy about that because cooking just wasn't, just hasn't been fun for one. Cooking for myself is just a bit too, I don't know, it just, just always reminds me of what I had and what I don't have anymore. And so for me not to have to worry about cooking an evening meal for myself um, just sort of takes that stress away and keeps people off my back by saying, have I, have I eaten, have I eaten, have I eaten? So... You can download the other episodes in this series from joy.org.au slash let's talk or look for them in your podcast feed. And you can also download the full-length interviews with the courageous people who have also shared their stories. Thanks to our amazing expert panel, Joe Ball from Switchboard Victoria and Louise Flynn for support after suicide. And also to the people we interviewed with lived experience, Alice, Bo, Lara and Peter. Let's Talk About Suicide is presented and produced by me, Hamish Blunk. Editorial assistance by Joy Program Director Rachel Tyler-Jones 
and technical help from Jack Trainor, Joy Production Manager. If you'd like to contact the show, you can email us at letstalk at joy.org.au. But if you need to talk to somebody right now or are in crisis, please contact one of the services in Australia. You can call QLife on 1800 184 527, the Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467, or Lifeline on 13 11 14. You can find all of these contact details at joy.org.au slash let's talk. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.